We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. There are three fundamental relationships in life. Our relationship to God, our relationship to other people, and our relationship to the world. The world both in terms of nature and culture. Now last week, we saw how the gospel produces a culture of giving that transforms our relationship with others. And the week before that, and for several weeks before that, we saw how the gospel transforms our relationship with God. But tonight, we tackle the third relationship, the relationship between us and the world, or at least the part of the world that we call culture. Now, this really is going to be um, hard stuff, but here's the way I figured it. You do algebra in what grade? Eighth grade? Fifth grade? I don't know. Ninth grade? So I figure teenagers, if you do algebra, you can do theology at church, okay? All right, so you're not off the hook. And children, here's my job for you. You just listen for the word culture. Every time I say it, whoever you're sitting by, punch them. Really? No, or, or just keep track of how many times I say it. All right, let's get started. Now, here's how, as we're thinking about the gospel and culture, as we're thinking about this, I think the best way for us as a church to sink our teeth into this enormous subject is to get the overall view of the Bible on culture. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to trace the arc of the biblical narrative And I'm going to show how at each of the four major hinges at creation, at the fall, at the climax when Christ shows up on the the scene, and then at the end when God sums all things up and makes all things new. I'm going to show at each of these four major hinge points how the gospel has something very distinctive to say about culture. So let's begin. If you have your Bible, find the first page. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The very first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, here's what I want you to notice. If you're reading the Bible like a novel, okay, like The Lord of the Flies or The Hunchback of Notre Dame or, I don't know, whatever you're reading. If you're reading the Bible like a novel and you didn't know anything about the Bible or what it's talking about, what is the first thing you learn about God? It's not that he's pure. It's not that he's holy. What is it? It is that he is a creator. In the beginning, God the theologian. Now, that's not what it says, right? In the beginning, God created. Our first encounter with God is that he is the source of limitless, extraordinary creativity. The universe, from stars to starfish, is the handiwork of a creative God. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So, God created the raw materials of the universe first. That's verse 1. And then in verse 2, we're told that all of the stuff God made, He created everything in verse 1, but in verse 2, we're told that it is formless. 
It's unformed. It's in a state of chaos and disorder. And that brings us to verse 3, where God begins forming and organizing and structuring the stuff that he created in an unformed state in verse 1. So on the first day, God formed day and night out of those raw materials he had already created. And then on the second day, he formed the skies. And on the third day, he formed the continents and the seas. And then halfway through day three, God shifts gears. He stops forming and he begins filling. He starts by filling the earth with plants and trees. And then on the fourth day, he fills the heavens with sun, moon, and stars. And on the fifth day, he fills the water with fish and the skies with birds. And on the sixth day, he fills the earth with animals. And then halfway through day six, just like halfway through day three, God shifts gears again and he makes humans. And look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God gives us five commandments in verse 28. I'm going to read the verse. Listen for the five commandments. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So five commands. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Now the first three commands that God gives the humans, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, he gave those exact same commands to the animals back in verse 22. But look at the final two commands that God gives to humans at the end of verse 28. We are told to subdue the earth and to have dominion over the animals in the air, land, and sea. We are not just to rule a few easily domesticated species like cattle or chicken or goldfish, right? We are to rule the whole of God's creation. Not just our immediate neighborhoods. Now, can you see what's going on here? Because this is huge. You've got to wrap your mind around this in order to take the Bible seriously when it talks about culture. In these couple of verses, between verse 26, 27, and 28, God has handed the baton of creating and ordering over to humans. Remember back in verse 1, he made the raw materials. But, verse 2 tells us, they were without form. And so in verses 3 through 25, God draws out the potential of those materials by forming and then filling. And then in verse 26, he stops. And the only time in the whole creation narrative, he announces what he's about to do. He clears his throat. He gathers the attention of the cosmos. And he says, I'm going to make a creature in my image to carry on the work I've been doing. So in verse 27, he creates humans. And in verse 28, he creates man and woman. And in, then he says, tag, you're it. It's your turn. Start creating, start shaping these raw materials that I've given to you. Form it, organize it, pull out of it its potential. Get to work. 
Now these words, to subdue and have dominion, they are loaded words. Now they were written back in the day before Facebook and before um, lots of things that we have today. Thousands of years ago. And in that day, these words were only, only used with kings. Only kings were said to subdue and have dominion. And to say that a king did this actually meant, now this is important, it meant that the king's job was to develop culture. It was a technical phrase. We find it in a lot of ancient inscriptions from this time period describing kings and their cultural activities. It's a technical phrase, and in its day, it carried that connotation specifically and no other. Cultural development. So what we see, we don't have time to go into this, is God, that God is the king. And then he touches humans and says, be vice regents. Be little kings. Carry on. You are in whose image? The starfish's image? No, you're in the king's image. Now, in fact, all around the world, Genesis 1.28 is referred to as the cultural mandate. But don't think of the word culture here only in terms of high culture, like hushed museums and symphony orchestra. And don't think of it only in terms of pop culture, like trends and fashions or ethnic culture or political culture. We hear all about the culture war in America. That's a use of the word in a very specific sense. It means the world of ideas that are political. Culture in the, in the context of Genesis, and as I'm going to talk about it the rest of tonight, culture is this, very specific. It is what we make of the world. Now, look at it this way. God makes nature, we make culture. So a river, something God makes, nature. A canal, culture. A raw piece of quartz, nature. An arrowhead, culture. An egg, that's nature. But an omelet, now that's culture, right? Snow, nature. Snow angels, culture. And the list goes on and on. But it's not just the work of our hands. It's also the work of our minds. So culture also includes things like education and tradition and science and art and philosophy and government and law and ritual and technology, all, all of these things. So what I'm saying is this. Culture is the whole of the man-made world. So let's sum up what we see about humans and culture at the first major moment of Scripture at creation, we see that culture-making is our calling. It is the fundamental reason that humans exist. To make something of the world. This is our birthright. It's the privilege and the responsibility that the Bible says God has given to us. We are responsible to exercise our power and abilities to create and cultivate, to form and fill, to develop and to reshape, whether it's sound waves, right? You're reshaping them when you move the bow across 
the, 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 the strings of the cello. Our calling is to reshape the world we find before us. To take the world that's given to you and make something of it. Bring something out of this world that was only there in potential. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And there's a lot of debate about what is the image of God. But in the context of Genesis chapter 1, it is this specifically. It is the fundamental task and the greatest power that humans have. It's our job. It's what we're made to do. So that's Genesis chapter 1. Now, I I wish that we had time for Genesis 2 where this theme of culture making is picked up and developed and emphasized even more than it is in Genesis 1, but we've got to fly. We need to turn now to the next major phase of the biblical narrative, Genesis chapter 3, the fall. Now, this is where Adam and Eve sin. And what we need to notice is the very first thing that Adam and Eve do after they eat fruit salad, okay? Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The first human act after the first sin is cultural. They make something. They make clothes out of fig leaves. Remember, culture is what we do with the world. The reason this is important is because it is imperative for us to see how deeply culture is embedded in human nature. Even when sin shatters us and alienates us from God, it does not remove either the power or the ability to bear God's image and make something of this world, to imitate his creative work, to pull out of this world its latent potentiality. Now, God came along and said, you need to do better at making clothes than that, right? And he made them leather clothes, which was a great improvement in culture. So, as we continue reading through the Bible... And trying to pay attention to what it says about culture, what you'll notice is that in story after story after story, the biblical authors continue to highlight the cultural activity. In chapter 4, verse 2, they domesticate livestock. Anthropology. This is a major cultural achievement, right? This is not, this would, chapter 4 of Genesis is an anthropologist's candy land. In verse 21, they develop musical instruments and they learn how to play them. In verse 22, they forge tools. Now, what I'm trying to show you is that sin did not stop culture making, but it did change the results. Like everything else, Adam and Eve's rebellion against the Creator. Broke culture. In chapter 4, verse 8, the first murder. And the author of Genesis is very careful to make sure we know that the first murder occurred in a cultivated field. Chapter 9, Noah, a righteous man, plants a vineyard. That is a huge cultural advancement. But... He gets drunk off the wine from his vineyard. And he exposes himself to his sons. And that is a shameful and destructive thing in his culture. 
Now, the low point when it comes to cultural brokenness is Genesis chapter 11. When humans systematically put their most advanced culture-making abilities to work, their skill, their intelligence, their language, their imaginations, all of it, they put it to work in order to shake their fist in the face of God. And this is the story of the Tower of Babel. This is when humanity pridefully and defiantly creates culture in an attempt to take over God's role. Now what I'm pointing out is this. For all of its moments of beauty and ingenuity, after sin, culture degenerates into Babel, into fist-shaking rejection of the Creator. Since the fall, what we humans make of this world is an incredible mixture of goodness and brokenness. Look at it this way. From fig leaves onward, culture becomes entwined with sin. But notice, notice though, that at the second major moment of the biblical narrative, at the fall, we see very clearly that sin did not remove either the responsibility or the power to subdue and have dominion. And this is so important for a biblical view of culture. Sin did not change our job description. It did not take away the fundamental reason for our existence. Now, our culture making is difficult. And it is fraught with all kinds of dead ends. And filled with all kinds of deadly repercussions since sin. But... When we look at the biblical story, sin does not remove our job to make culture. Now we've got to take a massive leap forward in the story to the third major hinge point, the climax of the story, when Christ shows up on the scene. This is lots of good cultural development and lots of bad cultural development later, okay? At the center of Jesus' message is this. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's the first thing out of his mouth in the Gospel of Mark. And in all of the Gospels, it is the heartbeat of what he says. Now, by couching his message in terms of a kingdom, Jesus wasn't simply delivering some sort of news report. Think about the difference between kingdom and four spiritual laws. One is culturally thick, and the other is abstracted out of culture. He's not just giving some sort of news report that you and I can listen to and learn some new information about what's going on in the universe. He's describing a whole new culture. God's culture is at hand. God's kingdom, God's whole way of living. And he was judging all of our cultural dead ends. He was saying all of your kingdoms filled with culture need to give way because God's kingdom is at hand. But you don't go messing with culture. Jesus did. 
He started messing with who eats with who. That's a major cultural rule. One of my friends said, ultimately the reason they killed Jesus was because of who he ate with. It leads to his death. And he was literally impaled on the worst that culture can do. The cross. An instrument of torture that represents the absolute dead end of culture. The culmination of the whole awful story that began in Genesis 3. The story of culture gone wrong. But the cross is not the end of the story. It's the turning point. Listen again to the passage that Sandy read to us out of Colossians chapter 1. Listen to verse 15. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For, get this, by Him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, Rulers or authorities. Now this phraseology is deliberately including our cultural development. All things were created through him and for him. Now drop down to verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself everything. All things. Whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. What we see here at the climax of the biblical narrative is this. In Jesus, God is at work to restore, to reconcile, not to abandon. The kingdom of God is about the transformation of what is broken, not its abdication. What I hope you're beginning to see is that the Bible has a consistent and a distinctive view of culture. Now let's wait, make one more jump, and this time to the end of the story that, that Alan read to us. Let's look at Revelation chapter 21, the next to last chapter, the next to last page of the Bible. And here we'll see what happens with culture in the life after death. In Revelation 21, we find a city coming down out of heaven from God. So it's a city that God has prepared. And it's an amazing example of expert craftsmanship. In every detail, it's filled with beauty. Just like he did in the beginning, he does in the end. God delights at the beginning of the story and the end of the story, in creating and forming and filling and shaping and drawing out of his raw materials all of their latent potentialities. This city, it is the work of a master architect and artist. But, and this is absolutely crucial, God's handiwork, is not all that we find in that city. Look carefully at one little preposition that shows up in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, about halfway through the verse. 
By its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory. What's the preposition? Into the city. The city that God made. Now, verse 26, here's the preposition again. They, the kings of the earth, the nations, will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. John is the man who wrote this, and he's riffing off of an ancient vision recorded by the prophet Isaiah. You can read about it another time. It's Isaiah chapter 60. What we need to know is that Isaiah, centuries and centuries before, had a vision given to him by God of of the end of history. And he records that vision in his book that we have in our Bible called the book of Isaiah. And in that vision, there's a city. And it's teeming with cultural goods. There are domesticated animals and ships and precious minerals and jewels and timber. And it's a center of commerce. A a place that receives vessels and goods and currency. And, And John knew this prophecy like the back of his hand. And so when John is writing in Revelation, he is deliberately echoing Isaiah's vision of the city being filled with the glory of the nations. And so when he says that the kings will bring their glory into it, and the nations will bring their glory into it, he is making a specific reference to cultural artifacts. The glory of a nation, what is it? Well, in terms of John riffing Isaiah 60, the glory of a nation is simply its greatest and most distinctive cultural achievements. In Isaiah's vision, it's the camels of desert merchants, the carefully cultivated timber of Lebanon, the large and sturdy ships of Tarshish. Now, this is really quite... Astounding, isn't it? The great and distinctive cultural goods, whether they are physical, made of the hand, or made of the mind. These things that we humans produce with our hands and our minds. Get this. They are the furniture of the new heavens and the new earth. They're the furniture That's John's point. That's why he's picking up Isaiah's vision. This city is filled not just with God's glory and God's presence and not even just with God's stunningly beautiful architectural designs and not even just with people that have been redeemed from every cultural background. It is also filled with the redeemed artifacts of human culture. It's filled with the accomplishments of science and art and philosophy and government and law and technology and ritual and the list goes on and on and on. Now, will all human culture find a place in the new heaven and the new earth? Absolutely not. What's going to happen to swords? They're going to be beaten into 
plowshares. And, and spears are going to be turned into pruning hooks. That's in Isaiah's vision too. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4. All of the cultural dead ends of history are going to be forgotten and left behind. Let's boil it down to this. In the end, when God sums up history and makes everything new, the new heavens and the new earth will be the place where God's instructions to the first humans are fulfilled. The new heavens and the new earth will be the place where all of the latent potentialities that were in that unformed material. Remember Genesis 1? Made it all. Genesis 2? But oh, it was unformed. Genesis 27? Tag, you're it. Form, fill, create, draw out. The new heavens and the new earth will be the place where all of the latent potentialities of the world will be discovered and released by creative, cultivating people. Now, do you see that it is simply not true? Not according to Isaiah or John and not according to the whole sweep of the biblical story from the beginning to the end. It is not true that souls are the only eternal things. Do you see how unbiblical that is? Do you see how much of Scripture you have to cast a blind eye to? It is not true that human beings are all that last into eternity. Our cultural accomplishments, they will pass through the fire of God's judgment. And if they survive, right? Wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, precious. If they survive, they will be purified and transformed just like we're going to be, right? We're going to be transformed. We're going to be purified. We're going to be renewed. So will... The how is the Sistine Chapel going to make it? I don't know. It'll look like it, but it'll look like it was meant to be in the mind of God. How is Beethoven's fifth going to sound? I don't know. But when it passes through a purifying fire, do, do you see that it is not only humans that God is struggling to redeem. But it's all of the potential of his creation that will become the furniture of heaven. So, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for Havala or for Haley or for Robert or Chris? What does it mean for Korah? down in the basement, in the bowels of the church? What does it mean for Cora tomorrow when she's mothering her children or for Alan when he's looking at spreadsheets, I suppose, at some point? Do you look at spreadsheets? Occasionally. Well, between now and winter, I'm going to have a number of opportunities to show how this whole approach to culture bears out in lots of practical ways. But ideas have consequences. So it's important that we begin at the idea stage. And that's where we've spent tonight. But let me, let me wrap it all up by touching on just one way that the biblical view of culture can affect you when you wake up tomorrow. Once we see that culture making is our God-given job as His image bearers in His creation, then we 
can understand that our job, whatever your job is, whatever you're getting paid or not paid to do, that your job is a holy duty. Think about it this way. Remember the passage that Sandy read. All things were created through him and for him. Do you believe it or not? If you believe that, and if you commit to living in the light of that truth, the absolute sovereignty of God over every square inch of this universe, then you are committing yourself to a belief that your job was created through Christ and for Christ, so long as your job falls within the everything category. If everything that is exists for the sake of God, then it follows that your job is a holy duty. Two practical implications. On the one hand, you should never despise your job. It's a holy duty. doesn't matter if you picked it or your parents picked it for you. Do you think there's more discontent in our culture where we pick our jobs or in other cultures where they don't? In our culture, your contentment has nothing to do with if you picked it or not. It has to do with your angle of vision. Now that's one hand. On the other hand, what this teaching shows us is that you should not forget whose glory it is you're working for. Your job matters to God. And wherever you stand, whatever you do, whatever your hand or your mind is put to tomorrow, if you're a teenager or a child, you know what your job is? You have a job. Your job is education. And you've got a few weeks of break or a few days of break. Altamont has a much longer break than you other little people. No, I'm joking. If you're a teenager, your vocation is education. That is a holy duty. Or or if you're in law or finance or raising children and running a house, whatever it is, when you work at your job, you are constantly standing before the face of God. And you are employed by God in the service of God in His vineyard, in His wide creation. And this is precisely what George Herbert was getting at in the poem we placed on the front of the worship guide. Just look at the first stanza. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. Now, you should read the rest of your poem another time, not now. There are many more ways that the biblical view of our relationship to culture actually impacts our our daily life. But this is a good place to start living in the light of Scripture. Begin by praying that prayer that Herbert prayed, teach me, God, in everything I do, whether I'm cleaning my room or playing tennis or learning a computer video game or working, whatever I'm doing, teach me to see it the way you see it. If you and I can just apply that to our job, our chores, to the mundane activities of human existence, then we can truly embrace a form of service to God that makes, he says later on in the poem, drudgery divine. As her, Look, I think there's two great temptations when it comes to work. One is to despise work, and the other 
is to repeat the sin of Babel and to try to use your culture-making activity as a replacement for God in your life. And if you can live in light of this teaching, you can avoid both of those extremes. Now, this is the view of culture that causes our church to insist on not only applying the gospel to individuals and to relationships, but we also insist on applying the gospel to culture. And this is why. Because it matters to God. It matters so much, it's going to be around. We have to stop. There's um, so much more for us to learn from Scripture about the power of the gospel to renew culture. But we've covered enough ground. Uh, Let me close by saying this. If you despise your work, there's a chance you don't understand the gospel or God's view of culture. And if you worship your work, there's a chance you don't understand the gospel or God's view of culture. And that's just one of the ways this thing works out. We're, we're going to have to stop, but we'll get around to touching on a lot of other ways. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that you would take these words of mine. God, I've tried to be faithful to your, to your scripture. I pray that you would take these words that I've spoken, like your, the fish and the loaves that you took into the hands of that little boy, and that you would multiply it, and you would grow it in our lives, and it would feed us deep in our souls, Lord. Help us as a church to take culture as seriously as you do. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.